Welcome to a special message from the Hollyview Church Retreat. We gather every Sunday morning at 1030 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now here is the first message from the retreat. This is session one, The Great Awakening with guest speaker Eric Wood. We are going back in time this weekend. And that's great because I love time travel. I love the idea of hopping in machine and going back in time. It's just so cool. Uh, Harry Potter 3, The Prisoner of Azkaban, is my favorite in the series right? Because of the time turner. I'm getting some nods here because there's time travel there. Uh, Back to the Future 2 was amazing. They should have made another one, right? I just imagined that one with the train, didn't I? Because it was was not good. I love time travel so much that I joined a time travel club. Unfortunately, our first meeting has been postponed until last week. So um, I, I was going to tell a joke about time travel, but nobody laughed. Oh, cross that one out. <clears throat> um, no, seriously, I used to be really into time travel, and maybe I was even addicted, but that's all in the past. One more, one more, one more. <clears throat> the, the barman says, we don't serve time travelers in here. A time traveler walks into a bar. (laughs) Okay. Our goal this weekend is to get to Pentecost by Sunday. And Sunday just so happens to be Pentecost. The way I approach this, this going back in time over the history of the church, is imagine all of church history is a mountain range. And here we are in 2022... We have a slide here. Here we are in 2022. If we look back to the cross, across this mountain range, there are two significant peaks that stand out above the rest and that affect us here in America, in Silverton, Oregon, right now, today. Tonight, we'll look at the Great Awakening. And then tomorrow, uh, the Great Awakening spiritual revival in the American colonies in the mid-1700s. And then tomorrow we'll explore the Protestant Reformation, which was kicked off in 1517 by Martin Luther. Our goal for the weekend is to get back to the first church, examine how things have gone wrong and right, and get back to how it was at the beginning, which is from Acts chapter 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's where we're headed. But first, why study church history? Why take the time to go back in time? Those are great questions. Good job. Knowing church history helps us. I have five reasons here. Number one, knowing church history helps us appreciate the sovereignty of God. The church has survived these 2,000 years because God is in control. He sees to her growth and flourishment through times of hardship and persecution. God builds his church. God sustains his church. Number two, knowing church history helps us see how people who love Jesus follow him. Through thick and thin, through good times and bad, we can learn from their successes and their mistakes. Number three, knowing church history helps us avoid chronological snobbery. Did you know we want to avoid chronological snobbery? This isn't my idea. This comes from C.S. Lewis. When he came to saving faith, um, he writes that he had to overcome his chronological snobbery, which he describes as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. So what he's saying is, new is not always better. New is not always better. Old ideas can still help us know and understand God and his church. C.S. Lewis suggests we should let the breezes of the centuries blow through our minds. G.K. Chesterton is a writer and theologian who was a little bit older than old Clive Staples, and he helped C.S. Lewis in his conversion and in his walk with the Lord. And Chesterton had this to say about looking back and learning from history. Real development is not leaving things behind as on a road, but drawing life from them as from a root. We want to avoid chronological snobbery. We want to look back and let the breezes of the centuries blow through our minds. Number four, knowing church history helps us live courageous Christian lives today. Looking back, Seeing God's providence in his church helps us face the world boldly, courageously. Jesus himself said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. When you consider all that the church has been through, you can courageously face whatever the church is facing next. And finally, knowing church history helps us remember Remembering is vital to the Christian life. We've got to remember we were dead in our sins in which we used to walk. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Remembering is vital. Psalm 143 Verse 5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Remembering is vital, and so is telling the next generation. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Remembering is vital to the Christian life. So, five reasons 
to study church history, why this is worth our time. So to understand the Great Awakening, we need to back up a little bit more and understand early colonial America. All right, all you history students? The Pilgrims, okay, Thanksgiving, remember? The Pilgrims came across from England uh, about 1620, and some of them were Puritans. They believed the Church of England was corrupt, and they desired to get back to the basics of Christianity and that Acts 2 church. Uh, soon after that, more Puritans came over from England, and they founded a colony in Massachusetts. And the Quakers, another group of pious believers who saw the corruption of the Church of England, they immigrated in, and they founded Pennsylvania. Uh, some Roman Catholics immigrated from Europe, and they founded Maryland in the 1630s. Uh, some Anglicans that still belonged to the Church of England and still bowed to the king, they settled mostly in Virginia. So colonial America is this melting pot of religions and denominations. These early pilgrims, particularly those Puritans, were fervent in their faith and belief in God. But over the course of the next hundred years, their children and their grandchildren would fall away. By the early 1700s, they began to grow wealth, and they became increasingly more comfortable with their colonial life. They didn't need God anymore. They had everything they needed. Their bellies were full. Their bank accounts were full. Who needs God in that situation? Church membership began to drop, and so to increase church attendance, the halfway covenant was invented. And that's like saying the square circle was invented because that's impossible. A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship between two parties, most often God and his people. This halfway covenant allowed you to be a member of the church without publicly professing your, uh, your faith in Jesus. You could belong to the social club known as church. So churches in those days were largely attended by people who lacked a personal relationship with Jesus. You even had many pastors who had become pastors without even being believers. They're leading their flocks without even knowing their shepherd. The church was stale and stagnant. And then suddenly, the Spirit of God awoke as though from an intense slumber and began to touch the population of the colonies. People from all walks of life, from poor farmers to rich merchants, began experiencing renewal and rebirth. And this is the Great Awakening. Enter my hero, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is the greatest American theologian. You should think of him when you think of the all-time great theologians, Luther and Calvin and Augustine and Edwards. And am I the only one that has a Mount Rushmore of favorite theologians? Maybe, maybe it's just me. Edwards was a believing pastor. He believed, he was a believing pastor in Northampton, Northampton, Massachusetts. He rejected the idea of this halfway covenant. He sensed the lack of personal conversion to Christ among his people. In 1734, he preached, uh, he preached a series of sermons 
on justification by faith alone. And his God-saturated, God-focused, God-entranced, God-glorifying ministry sparked a flame of revival in his community. Many people were saved. Multitudes of souls were rescued from hell in this revival. And Edwards wrote about it in a letter that he titled, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton. And you can read it today. That letter made its way over to England, where the great hymn writer Isaac Watts published it. You've sung hymns written by Isaac Watts, I guarantee. When I survey the wondrous cross, joy to the world. Edwards was now well-known on both sides of the Atlantic. And then, in 1741, a pastor in nearby Enfield, Connecticut, invited Edwards to preach to his congregation. And the pastor in Enfield desired a revival like the one in Northampton. Edwards preached his most famous sermon, and arguably the most famous sermon ever preached in America. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Did any of you study this sermon in school? I think it's part of curriculum somewhere. Oh, Gina did. Okay. Very good. Uh, it's full of powerful imagery, like we're a spider held over the fiery pit of hell by God's hand. And it's God's good pleasure to hold us and not to drop us in. Or this passage, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Ooh. Doom and gloom and fire and a brimstone, but also boundless hope. Hit this. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day when Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. People wept and cried out, what must I do to be saved? They clung to their pews, fearing they were about to fall into fiery judgment. Revival had begun in the colonies. The spirit of God was on the move. Enter George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield was cross-eyed, okay? Can you all see that? So every picture you find, we've got another one. Every picture you find, it's a little bit distracting, but there is one from, there we go. So from that angle, 
we got him. Whitfield was an itinerant preacher in England, uh, meaning he didn't have his own congregation, but he traveled around and he preached. And in 1739, he came to America on a preaching tour. As he toured the colonies, he sensed the need for revival. I am verily persuaded, he wrote, the generality of preachers talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ. And the reason why congregations have been so dead is because dead men preach to them. Whitfield was a gifted orator. He was able to be heard in all corners of the largest room and uh, in, in the fields, in the forests, across rivers. He was such a great communicator that a famous British actor at the time named David Garrett, Garrick once said, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. His popularity grew to the point that there were no rooms that could accommodate the crowds that came out to hear him. He preached in farmers' fields and along rivers. His last sermon in America was in Boston, where 23,000 people showed up to hear him preach. At that time, that was the largest gathering ever in the colonies. One of Whitfield's most famous sermons is entitled, Marks of a True Conversion. And the text is Matthew 18, 3, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. My favorite section of, of this sermon comes towards the end in my Whitfield voice. Are ye God's children? Are ye converted and become like little children? Then deal with God as your little children do with you. As soon as ever they want anything, or if anybody hurt them, do they not directly run to their parent? Well, are ye God's children? Doth the devil trouble you? Doth the world trouble you? Go tell your father of it. Go directly and complain to God. Perhaps you may say, I cannot utter fine words, but do any of you expect fine words from your children? If they come crying and can speak but half words, do not your hearts yearn over them? And has not God unspeakably more pity to you? Revival took hold, and people were awakened to the gospel by the thousands. An estimated 300,000 people lived in the colonies at the time, and upwards of 50,000 new members were added to the church. People were born again by the thousands. Princeton, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth universities were established as a direct result of the Great Awakening. Religion was reinvigorated in America at a time when it was steadily declining. What can we take from this? We should beg God for revival. First, for us personally. Revival starts personally. Beg God to awaken us to his ways, that he would enable us to follow hard after him 
and that the gospel would overflow from us to those around us. Beg God to not let us grow comfortable. Beg God to not let us forget him and our need for him. And second, beg God for revival publicly. For us, corporately, we should beg God for revival in our churches today. That people would take personal responsibility for their sin and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That our churches would grow from unbelievers joining and being born again. That new churches would be planted and the gospel would go forth. Beg God for revival, personally and publicly. Let's go to the Bible now and see an example of a great awakening. 2 Kings 22, the kingdom of Israel was split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. One of Judah's kings, Josiah, wanted to repair the temple, uh, the house of the Lord, which had fallen into disrepair due to the neglect of the kings before him. Josiah sends his secretary up to the high priest, uh, who was Hilkiah at the time, to tell him, use the offerings to rebuild the temple. Hilkiah says, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, uh, and also, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. That's 2 Kings 22, verse 8. Judah had slid so far, had neglected God and his ways to the point that the book of the law was lost for a while. They lost the Bible. The secretary returns to the king, and it's really strange. He updates him on the money and the temple and the workmen. He just goes through this whole list. And then after all that's out of the way, he says, uh, and Hilkiah has given me a book. And then he reads it to the king. And that was verses 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Josiah is grieved by what he hears. He and his people have neglected God and his ways. They have fallen asleep. The king was supposed to have his own personal copy of the book of the law. They forgot about that a long time ago. The priest was supposed to have much of it memorized so he could encourage and edify the people. It wasn't being done. Now the book was found. The word was read and the word spread. Chapter 23 tells us of Judah's great awakening. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him and the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. All the people joined in. They committed to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul. The people of Judah were awakened greatly by the word of God. May the word of God awaken in us a heart for the lost and a passion for the glory of God. May we see great revival in our day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men who were 
committed to your word and thank you that by it, um, people in the past were awakened and we are awakened today. Help us to know it and love it and stick close to it. And, uh, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. That while we were dead, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We thank you that he didn't stay dead, that he rose so we don't have to fear death, so we know we will live forever. We thank you that he ascended, and we thank you that he is coming back. And Jesus, would you come quickly? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, Thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.